1: is the key to all of this. You know how to fly this thing? We'll see. That's a yes or no question. Yes.
2: you're telling
1: me you've come a long way but you're not as strong as you think
2: this war is just the beginning
1: i'm not gonna fight your war i'm gonna end it during a recent visit to skywalker sound i sat down for a conversation with two women behind the sound of captain marvel starring Brie Larson in Marvel's first female-fronted adventure. Supervising sound editor Gwendolyn Yates Whittle was Oscar-nominated for Tron Legacy and Avatar, and her recent and upcoming credits include Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and Mulan. Rerecording mixer Laura Hirschberg won an Oscar for Inception and earned a second nomination for The Dark Knight. Her recent credits include The Lion King and upcoming Black Widow. Today we talked about their work on Captain Marvel and also the state of their art. Which is still underrepresented by women, though they say that's gradually changing. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's behind the screen. Gwen, Laura, Hi. thank you for joining us. Hi. First question, and Laura, actually, maybe you could start with this. Is there a Marvel Cinematic Universe approach to the sound? (laughs) Yeah, I'd say very
2: much so. Um, If you think about it, you know, many of the characters and the locations and the practical spaceships and weaponry and all that sort of stuff travels from movie to movie, and it evolves in the different movies. I I think of Hulk as being a, a character who started off very... You know, grunting and and almost animalistic sounds in um, Avengers. He only had a couple of moments in there, and then by the time you get to Endgame, he's he's a full-on you know character speaking role through the whole movie. So it's interesting. You have to when you start. I find that whenever I start with a new Marvel character, I'm very conscious of like, okay. I'm going to write this all down because we're going to be back here. Any kind of processing we do to the voice, any kind of treatments we do, if we pitch shift somebody, we have to make a note of that because they're going to pop up in another movie. In fact, in this film, we had Ronan, the accuser, who first showed up, I believe, in Guardians, and when he showed up in Guardians, he had to be, you know, very threatening and had a you know, a whole character that we had to establish. So his voice was pitched down a little bit in that film. And it also made it kind of comic sometimes because he just sounded kind of stupid. But in this film, when he pops up, we had to remember what that pitch shift was, how we treated it, um, the location he was in, the spaceship he was in, had a particular echo on it that I had to put back. So I'm very conscious of making notes about every. Particular voice that comes through that universe, and and keeping it as consistent as I possibly can. And you've also said that you always have an element of comedy in there too. Yeah, so that's another thing. I mean, talking about the the sonic thing, but gen, just also the general philosophy of the Marvel movies, which is something I really enjoy. Is that they, although they are action, big action movies, giant set pieces, a lot of you know warfare and all that, they also always have a really strong comedic kind of through line or characters who provide comic relief or, or situations that are entertaining and fun and lighter. So it's just the banter between the different, you know, actors is always really important to the movies. And I think that was established early on with the Iron Man when we did Iron Man way back when. That was kind of the the touchstone of what made these movies so much fun and different was that mix of of uh, comedy and action and Jon Favreau was, the you know... The person who basically created that world for them in a lot of ways so that's something we're always conscious of when we're working on the films
0: not taking things too seriously sound effects wise also exactly like you know the cat burping and things like that so well, I, know, I think they took the burp out <laughs> i think it's point. still in there yeah, maybe
1: <laughs> oh, oh you want to get personal where were you born huntsville alabama but technically i don't remember that part name your first pet mr snoofers mr snoofers that's what i said did I pass? Not yet. First job? Soldier. Straight out of high school. Left the ranks of full bird colonel. Then? Spy. Where? It was the cold war. We were everywhere. Uh, Belfast, Bucharest, Belgrade, Budapest. I like the bees. I can make them ride. Now? Been riding the desk for the past six years, trying to figure out where our future enemies are coming from. Never occurred to me they would be coming from above.
2: Name a detail so bizarre a scroll could never fabricate it.
1: <laughs> Toast is cut diagonally. I can't eat it. You didn't need that, did you? No. No, I didn't. But I enjoyed it. So Gwen, one of your focuses was the dialogue. So let's talk a bit about that. Um, you've said that that was challenging in this film for the characters that were costumes. Could you elaborate? Um, Talos in particular, the Ben Mendelsohn character, he had a
0: full-on prosthetic mask and a mouthpiece. And he's got a slight lisp to begin with. So between the mask and the prosthetic and the... Lisp, and in one scene in particular, he was standing in a field of cicadas. It was, you have to sell the idea that there's this alien on Earth standing and uh, talking to the other characters, but not he's not a man in a mask with the prosthetic and a field of cicadas. You have to believe that they are where they are not, that he's got all the... You have to believe he is a Skrull, not a man in a mask in a field of cicadas. So we did a lot of ADR in that particular scene. Sometimes a mask got in the way, sometimes it it didn't i mean we actually we actually were able to save quite a bit of the production in that particular scene because everyone loves the original performances and you obviously with adr you do your best to recreate that but it's always a little bit different there's always a little bit of different flavor to it so laura between laura and i we've kind of pieced together syllable by syllable so he did not sound like a man in a mask and filled field of cicadas but he actually sounded like a the character you believe. There are scrolls on Earth, so (laughs) you
2: believe that now. You know, another thing that happens often in the films is that as it's going along and they're showing it and it's developing in picture and it's developing in the cut, they'll want to add dialogue lines or add content. And so you'll have to bring an actor back in to recreate a performance that was him, you know, in this full-on costume. And that's that's tricky for the actor sometimes to get really back into that mindset so oh, they can add these lines right.
0: that are kind of off-camera or Although and did this thing, he took a, a post-it and he just put it under his upper lip to kind of <laughs> try and recreate a little bit of the prosthetic that he had in his mouth because it helped him get back into character.
1: <laughs> um, would you share how you handled the mind frack? Oh, the mind
2: frack. Okay, so that's the moment in the movie where... Um, Carol is abducted by the the scrolls by Talos, and um, they kind of put her in this situation where they're going to uh, go into her memory and and trying to get information out of her. And it's a really fun scene because it involved it, dialogue-wise, we had the character of Talos and his little um, you know sidekick henchman guy interrogating her but they're off camera so we with the Dolby Atmos uh, system we could put their voices in the theater sort of behind us as if we were her head and we were listening to what they were saying around her so they're discussing the situation what they're gonna do to her what's happening in the on the screen which is why it's not working yeah the images that she's remembering exactly and kind of trying to walk through what they want to get out of her so their voices are around us in the theater and then we're seeing what she's remembering And what I really liked about that sequence was, you know, normally you have kind of a a point of view, subjective sequence like that, and you're just stuck really in that character's brain. But in this, the way that they cut it and the way that it was scored, it really moved from being subjective to... Objective, I guess you could say, as if you know the audience is sort of watching the movie, and then suddenly they're in the movie, and then they're back watching it, and so it moved back and forth pretty effortlessly.
0: And they um, were as confused as Carol was as what was going on and what she could, because she's obviously never been fracked before, so it really worked. Her confusion worked with the audience's confusion, right?
2: And then the the scene was cut to those moments when you thought something was revealed and then it would cut away like, no, that's not what we want, back up. And the thing would sort of rewind. So it was a pretty interesting sequence and visually it worked really well too. They did a great job putting that together.
1: Another interesting sequence was when Carol gets her binary power.
2: Right, yeah, so she goes binary, which means um, she's just the baddest Baddie that ever was, and what was interesting with the sound effects there was that there was a lot of discussion about the sound coming from her. It had to be, it couldn't be electrical, it couldn't be kind of it had mechanical, to be an, an
0: organic internal, uh, internally sourced sound of her power. Right,
2: and then of course with these films, we often don't get to see the imagery until very late. Right. So they're telling us it's gonna, she's gonna glow, and it's gonna swirl, and you're like, okay. And she's got to sound like this and that. So there's a lot of discussion before we actually see it from the directors, from the Marvel executives, Victoria Alonso and Kevin Feige. And they're all sort of describing almost what they think it's going to be like, too, because they haven't quite seen it yet either. So we go through a lot of iterations of finding different sounds, which is really good, because then in the end, you kind of have auditioned all these different ideas. And you can kind of pull together something that um, is an amalgam of all those those adjectives that you've been given, and usually it's...
0: You have the recipe right, or pretty close, by the time you get the final
2: image. Yeah,
1: it's kind of nice. Would you elaborate on how you mixed it?
2: That sequence at the end there, um, when she does go binary, you know, the the score had come to its fullest, biggest moment in the movie, and, of course, you've got these very iconic lines of her saying, you know, this is me, I can do this, you know, so she's sort of stating her, her purpose... And then the sound effects have to kind of carry the, the visual in a lot of ways. So it's a lot of back and forth between those three elements to make sure you can hear what she's saying, you can feel the, the textures that the sound effects are coming, but you also get that emotional lift and, and resolution that the music is going to
0: bring. And you. also making sure that everything's not big at exactly the same time, that right. all the music works with the sound effects to this big crescendo, but they're not hammering each other. Right. Which, which was always, it's, it's a give and take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we work hard to find, like, at this moment, we're going to have that. At this moment, we're going to keep this. And if you can sort of spread out those ingredients over a a sequence, then the audience feels like they've gotten it all. They just didn't have to have it all on top of
0: each other, you know. And they'll feel the crescendo without even realizing that there's been a give and take.
2: I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free?
1: Now, this year, there's also a documentary out called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, where we hear about the history of sound and a lot more about the process and the different roles of a sound team. And the two of you are both featured on camera in this one. What was it like to be a part of that project? It's very weird to be in front of the camera.
0: Yeah, we're not
2: used to being in it's front of the camera. Strange. In fact, having a microphone in front of me is very odd. I, I'm a re-recording person. Yes. I'm not a recording person. Um, I, I
0: tell other people what to say.
2: I <laughs> say it. Uh, it was fun, though, because, you know, what I really liked about working with Midge is she's such a brilliant teacher and, and cinema studies you know historian, and she's done our jobs, and she knows very well what it takes and what goes into it. So that was really fun to have a director who you didn't have to really explain it to. They just knew where the really interesting stuff was and the really interesting um, details about
0: what this craft is all about. So so it was really fun. She's also very approachable and very easy to be relaxed around. It was really helpful.
2: In fact, do you remember, Gwen, we went down to her class at USC.
0: We did? Probably oh, right. about did. a
2: few years before that. Wow. And Gwen and I hosted a panel called Take My Job, Please, because we wanted to get more <laughs> women in the
0: to come up into sound yeah and it was really fun so
2: she she we had sort of collaborated with her on that you know in the past and she's a real advocate for for getting more women into all sorts of
1: uh, aspects of the film industry but because sound is her job she's she focuses on that there is a very limited number of women in your roles right now would each of you give us a snapshot of how you got your start in the business I can't speak for Laura but I'm, I'm a little on the
0: older side, and when we started, the crews were actually much, much, much bigger because we worked in mag, so you needed physical manpower to do the job, and there were a lot more women then. And then when digital came and the computers came, for some reason-
2: I think I know what the reason is. I think when, when the technology changed, the people who were already very um, proficient at that technology were a lot of young guys who had been in the computer business. And suddenly those people who were in the computer industry who had an interest in sound kind of had an easy end. That's true. And they kind of became the, you know, the the ones who came in and taught us the technology and became the assistants. And then they ended up taking, you know, a a big portion of of work as they went forward, which is great because they're all very talented folks. But I think that that had something to do with it at that point. I mean, it's true. When when I started too, in in mixing, there's never really been any any parity between men and women because it's
0: now there's three women mixers. Well, there's a lot Four. more than
2: that, but um, I three think better. that it's just it's also been that in the ecosystem of sound, the number of mixing jobs, although it's very high profile and you know fancy and whatever, it's a very small percentage of of the actual people who do it. There's maybe a hundred people in the country who do my job at this this particular there's level a, usually
0: two on a movie sometimes yeah. three.
2: so the percentage if you take the average percentage of women in below the line you know technical jobs it goes down to be like seven percent seven percent of a hundred is seven people and if there's not that many you know so you can look at it that way but i think it's getting better i think one of the things like we were talking about that panel we did that's really important is when i was in film school i didn't even know my job existed and when i started getting into sound i i I gravitated towards editorial, because that's where I saw that women were working. And it's sort of this thing where you walk past a door of an open room and it's filled with men, you don't necessarily walk in there because it doesn't feel like it would be a comfortable space for you and vice versa if a man walked past a room with a bunch of women in it. So I think the more that we have our visibility and show that we're actually here, the more encouraging it is for younger women to.
0: There tend to be more women dialogue editors than effects editors too, and I think that's gradually changing as well which is a good thing, too. But I think it's also, oh, look, that lady, she just, oh, I'll do dialogue, too. It's a very it's a very mm-hmm. similar thing. And I think we're both
2: very, um, you know, it's a mission of ours to encourage younger women to take our jobs, you know, to do what we do.
1: And how did you get started, Laura?
2: Um, I, w- I went to film school. Actually, we went to the same film school, That's we went right. to NYU. But I, didn't know, I, back did, back I didn't know you then. No, I didn't know you then either. Um, (laughs) And uh, I ended up, I worked in New York for a long time and just sort of artsy post houses doing video stuff and dance stuff and all sorts of just audio, not necessarily to picture. And then I moved out to San Francisco and found my way to Zoetrope and then here. So I just sort of (laughs) stumbled my way around until I landed into what I thought was a really fun job, which is the job that I have now, which is the best job there is in the film industry. I
0: I, kind of like my job, actually. I prefer my my job.
2: Oh, hey, guys. Arm wrestle for the Tesseract?
1: I used to find you amusing. Let's put an end to this! What advice would each of you give young women who want to get into your roles? Do it. Yeah. Just do it. Be Nike. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think just, you know, if you want to do something and you have that interest, that's ninety percent of the
0: right the task, you know? Do it for your friends' movies, do it for you know, do it for you know goals. People always need help on their films and student films are always better with a decent soundtrack. And yep. That's how you get better at your job. That's also how you make the relationships with the people who are going to, you know, they're going to go from a student film to making a short to making a feature. And if you've already done their student film, if you've already done their short, oh, look, they'll probably hire you to do the feature, too. Mm -hmm. So that's how you build the relationships. And
2: And watch a lot of movies, too. I think, you know, the thing that I'm always reminded of when I'm, you know, a big part of my job is just being in the room with the directors and the creative people and talking about what their ideas are. And my knowledge of film history, which I got in my education, that's I, I use that every single day in conversation because they're not interested in the technology of what I do, but we're all interested in films and f- in film history and filmmaking. Like the way
0: the helicopters sounded on Apocalypse Now. Like, oh, I know how they did that. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> and do you want to give a shout out to the key members
0: of the sound team?
1: Chris Boys,
0: wonderful sound right. designer, re-recording mixer of the effects department, J.R. Grubbs unbelievable. Chris Kirsten
2: Gridley, who's the other uh, dialogue editor, worked very closely with us.
0: Kirsten Mate did mm-hmm. wonderful work. Um, and the future
2: of Hollywood. Kim Patrick. Kim Patrick. Yes.
0: Victoria Alonzo saw her effects editing. She said, oh my God, you are the future of Hollywood. So now she's F.O.H. from <laughs> from here on out. Um, had a really great Foley team. Jenna Vance and Ronnie did a wonderful job um, walking the Foley.
2: And then uh, Doug Parker at, at Disney, who's the mix tech on that stage, we worked with a lot. It's great. So everyone at the stage a at Disney is fantastic yes. as well.
0: Thank you, Don Byro, for keeping us well fed and stocked with everything. <laughs> Doc Kane for recording all our all our fantastic ADR with prosthetics and all sorts of other fun things. Um, Marco Alessia unbelievable right. wonderful steady
2: and bonnie wild uh, another uh, one of our sound mixers was bonnie Wilde who did a lot of the uh, the pre-mixing and the sound effects side and then all the rest of the team which did a fantastic
0: job. We, we had a small army of sound designers, and thank you all for for helping us pull through last minute visual updates
1: <laughs> thank you both so much for joining us thank you